today on Building the Open Metaverse. This is what we stand for. This is how we are going to continue to grow as a company. We're going to be open. We're going to be listeners. We're going to be learners. That makes the difference. Welcome to Building the Open Metaverse, where technology experts discuss how the community is building the open metaverse together. Hosted by Patrick Cozy from Cesium and Mark Petit from Epic Games. My name is Mark Petit. I'm from Epic Games and my co-host is Patrick Cozy from Cesium. Patrick, how are you? Hey, Mark. I'm doing great. You know, I enjoy recording these episodes so much because, you know, like the audience, I, I learn a lot and I get inspired. And today I know we're going to learn a lot about AR, but we also have someone who is amazing when it comes to partnerships and ecosystems. So I can't wait. Yeah, well, let's get going. Our guest today is Peggy Johnson, the CEO of Magic Leap. Magic Leap doesn't need to be introduced. Peggy, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. I'm looking forward to this. So Peggy, we like to kick off the episode by asking our guests about your journey to the metaverse, if you want to go through your time at Qualcomm, Microsoft, and now Magic Leap. Sure. Happy to do that. It, it was quite a journey. Um, I was 25 years at Qualcomm and sort of grew up in the mobile phone industry there. I started as an engineer, moved into program management, product management, eventually into sales and marketing, and then ran a division there. But it was near the latter half of my time there when I was running uh, global market development, like their biz dev group. And that's when Qualcomm started its own journey with augmented reality and the product Euphoria. So they had built that um, on mobile phones. And it was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that, where you could actually put digital content in front of the, the scene in front of you looking through your mobile phone. And, and I was amazed by it. They continued to develop that. Um, I eventually moved over to Microsoft. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But the product itself, Euphoria, was sold to PTC. I'm not sure what year it was. It was after I left. And it still lives on today at, at PTC. Um, and they've continued to expand and, and develop around that. Um, I went over to Microsoft in 2014 and um, had job that I just loved running biz dev for Satya Nadella, uh, just an iconic leader in the industry. And that was my first introduction to HoloLens. And that to me was yet another level of amazing because it was, you know, a headset right on your eyes. It seemed like the right way to do it. So your hands could be free, you know, to navigate your physical world. Um, and then I want to say around 2018 or so, uh, we were invited to come see Magic Leap One. I think it was just before their launch. It launched in uh, 2018 in the summertime. It was probably just before that. And then again, what a next level up on on what could really be the promise of this technology, augmented reality, and and the things that I saw were just amazing and. Um, the clarity of the images, uh, really, I was just blown away. And finally came to Magic Leap in, uh, it was 2020, so it was in the midst of the pandemic, when I um, saw that Roni had stepped down as CEO, and I very intentionally raised my hand because I just wanted to be part of it. It felt to me much like the mobile phone industry did years ago as it was just getting going and as we were just starting to experiment at, at Qualcomm with uh, data on your phone and and you know never thinking it would be a, a computer in our pocket and to me this was a computer on our eyes and I just just had to be part of that whole journey and I've been at Magic Leap now almost three years three years in August 
Okay, let's come back on a few things. I mean, Qualcomm <laughs> is an interesting company because it's it's everywhere and it doesn't have maybe consumer awareness. So what role do you think that company could play in the metaverse? It looks to me like it could play a pretty big role. Absolutely. I mean, they're the major provider to, you know, the processor in most of the mobile phones out there. And so certainly they have the scale to have impact in uh, in this space, in the augmented reality space. I think the other thing that um, folks are going to be relying on Qualcomm for is just the level of compute that's needed to actually enable augmented reality. You know, most of these devices, in order to accurately place it in your physical world, you have to do simultaneous location and mapping. You have to know where where things are in your physical world so that you can put the digital content in the right place. And that just takes an incredible amount of compute. Um, the, the rendering of the pictures uh, and doing it all in real time with no latency. And so we, you really have to rely on a high level of compute. This is something that's it's not sort of a, a you know, your, your standard kind of uh, mobile phone usage. It's something on another level. And I think Qualcomm is the company that can do that. So, Peggy, I also wanted to ask you about Microsoft. So we met earlier this year. Uh, we were on a panel at CES. And it was really funny timing because on my way home, I was listening to Satya's book, Hit Refresh, right on the kind of refounding of Microsoft. And then I, I heard the name Peggy Johnson. I go, that the Peggy I was just with today? And then I kept hearing your name, I swear, was mentioned more than anyone else in the book. Very complimentary about you changing the culture at Microsoft to be open to partnerships and creating these incredible win-win uh, relationships. So we'd love to hear kind of your approach to doing that. It is one of the reasons that I said yes to Satya because I felt like... Um, you know, just in, in the interview process and talking to him about how he wanted to change the company and why he needed to change the culture, I just thought, I, I want to be a part of that. I could see his vision. And at the time, you know, I didn't know, is his vision going to work? I hope so. I'm going to jump in. <laughs> and it did. You know, he it was pivotal to the company's rebound and now their their success over the past several years was that change in culture. And, um, you know, he, he talked a lot about always being, you know, the person who's listening and learning and, and not, you know, presenting yourself as the smartest person in the room, but the listener and the learner. And that just resonated to me. That, he, he said to me in my very first interview, and I thought, I want to work for this gentleman because I knew I could learn from him. Um, and I think what I brought was this, you know, muscle in building partnerships. I had done that at Qualcomm and, and Qualcomm at the time, you know, they had a business model that wasn't loved by everyone. <laughs> it, it, it's a strong business model, uh, you know, where you license a patent pool and the more innovations that Qualcomm built, that they just got thrown into the pool and you would license the pool as a whole. And, and there was a lot of you know, testing of that model over the years and companies weren't always happy with it. Um, and, and, but it was the place to go if you wanted the latest innovations in uh, mobile phones. And so I think what Qualcomm had to learn is along the way, you have to partner with people, not just 
present a business model as a binary. And, and, and so we, we were doing that my last few years there, it was all about growing a partnership um, with the industry and showing how a partnership with Qualcomm could bring them value and that, it, you know, we, we would bring them value. They would bring us value. It was a two way street. And that sensibility is something that Satya, I believe was looking for because one of the things he said is I want you to, you know, to go down to Silicon Valley and, and just become their new best friend. And, and I was remember, I remember thinking uh, at the time, they were a challenging company to partner with because <laughs> Qualcomm was a partner of Microsoft and it wasn't always easy. But he his whole point was, if, if we're going to grow, we have to partner better with the industry. It has to be a two-way street. That's how you grow. You know, it's, it can't just be, this is good for me and it's no good for you. I'm sorry about that. And he saw that so clearly. And that is how I spent my time. I was mostly on a plane. I was uh, you know, kind of reintroducing the company in some ways um, to the industry and saying, hey, we're open for business. We want to partner and we want to grow together. It's it's not just going to be a one-sided equation. A lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs and involved in young companies. And we all know culture is very important. So, you know, what's the one thing that a CEO or an entrepreneur must must think about when it comes to defining culture? How do we How do we impact culture? Yeah, first, I think it has to be top down. It just has to be. It can't just be talking points and we're going to try and be better here or there. It has to be top down. And one thing that Satya did so well is he would repeat it all the time. He would he would say, you know, the, the principles that we were hoping to adhere to as a company, you know, the cultural principles and the values. And, you know, oftentimes he would start the all hands with a, a repeat of those. And that tends to then not just go to the first layer or the second layer, it starts to spread throughout the whole company. And obviously it was part of our recruiting. So when new recruits came in, they had already heard the message about the culture. And I think it would just be impossible to change the culture unless you had that, have that top-down push. It can't be someone over in the HR department saying, let's change the culture and here's a few things we're going to do. It has to be owned by the CEO, owned by the executive team, and then all the layers down. Um, and, and if it's not, you know, either those people eventually leave who don't embrace the new culture or ju it's just going to take longer. So the repeat over and over of this is what we stand for. This is what, this is how we are going to continue to grow as a company. We're going to be open. We're going to be listeners. We're going to be learners. That makes the difference. So let's turn to Magic Leap. Magic, Magic Leap is still a young company, but it has a very rich history. Uh, and a pretty incredible, it's an incredible story. I mean, it was founded in 2012, super stealth. Uh, they built, Ronnie built an amazing team. And then it generated crazy expectations. I mean, I don't know if you, you probably remember, we all remember that. And then, you know, and then it kind of uh, hit, hit some problems. And there you, you join. So you talked to us already about your motivation to get on, to get on board. So how did you approach that, uh, that new, new job? Well, a couple of things. I, I had had a chance, as I said, to see the technology. I knew nothing was broken there. In fact, I was amazed by it. I, I couldn't believe what they had done in, in such a small package, even Magic Leap 1, and the way it all worked together. It just worked so well. And, and at least from the outside looking in, I thought, well, technology works. That's one big box check. I don't have to worry about it. It wasn't like 
you know, they'd gotten to the 90th percent and they said, we can't figure out this last 10%. Not at all. As you said, they had a talented team, the best in the industry. And Roni was a visionary. What he created is unbelievable. It truly is. And kudos to him for understanding that he had to pull that whole system together. It's not just about the waveguides or the projector or the or the form and fit. It, it's uh, all of those things together and they all have to work well together. So from the outside looking in, I thought, you know, Magically One had already launched and it was two years in and it, it had not been the success that they had hoped for. Um, but the product itself was strong and the technology was strong. I felt they were just focused at the wrong market. They'd, they'd put a lot of attention on the consumer market. There was some enterprise effort that was going on, but most of the attention and the resources had gone toward the consumer market. And I just kind of winding back to my mobile phone days, I remember those first mobile phones and they were big and they were heavy and they were, they cost a lot of money. It was a small ecosystem, but they proved worthwhile to the enterprise sector. That's who was buying mobile phones in the beginning because they were solving a problem that they had. And there's a few areas, but one that I like to highlight is just the fact that you didn't have to stop and find a parking spot in a, in a phone booth to contact your office anymore. You could call from the car. So think how much time that gave back to a salesperson back then to make that phone call from their car rather than, you know, getting off the freeway and figuring out where, you know, to find a parking spot and finding that phone booth that someone wasn't already at. And, you know, all of those things that just solve for it. And in that, not so small, but in that device from their car. And I thought, you know, really sort of the same things is happening here. Some of the complaints about early augmented reality devices and, you know, HoloLens, was in the same category as they were, they were, um, they were a little big and they, you know, the ecosystem wasn't large. They were costly, but did they solve a problem for a sector? They did. We actually had people buying magically one, uh, focused on enterprise use cases because they were solving problems for them. One of them was a company called brain lab who, who does, um, volumetric, uh, scans of the brain. And previously, they've been viewed on your 2D laptop. And now with Magic Leap 1, you could view the, the brain in front of your eyes. You could blow it up real big. You could walk inside of it. You know, it was, it was an amazing training tool. And they found value and ROI in Magic Leap 1. So what we did is we went back and listened to all the enterprise folks who had bought Magic Leap 1 and said, if you could change something on this, what would it be? And we got lots of feedback. Um, Clearly, the just the human factors part of it was was a big one. You know, the form, the fit can't bug your nose when it's sitting on your nose for several hours. They wanted it to last for several hours. They wanted the images clearer. They wanted to be able to read the text better. While you could put a screen, you could you know put a virtual screen in front of your eyes, sitting in your living room. But if you wanted to read what was on the screen, it was a little tougher. The text wasn't as clear. It wasn't as le uh, legible. The other thing we did is there had been some complaints that when you're in a really brightly lit area, it's hard to see the digital content at times. And so Magic Leap came up with really a first in the industry uh, dimming effect. 
So you can darken the background and have both the physical and the digital content pop in front of your eyes. And for surgeons who wanted to use Magically, the next generation of Magically, which is certified to take into the operating room, they said, really, an operating room is where I'd like something like that because they're very noisy and loud and brightly lit. And if they just wanted to zoom in on the knee and put a digital copy of the scan of the knee on top of the patient, they'd really like the rest of the room to kind of fade into the background with maybe the exceptions of the, pa- the patient's vitals in, in you know, some comfortable area of your field of view. So we worked on that and the engineers did an awesome job on that. And they came up with not only global dimming, but also segmented dimming. So you can dim out the whole view or just pieces of your field of view. And um, that's been a real, real big change. We also have a, an extended battery that can give you, um, you know, first of all, the standard battery is about three and a half hours, which is longer than the first one. But extended battery for long surgeries, for instance, uh, can go up to eight hours plus. And so it's just flat, lays on your back, simple to use. And you don't have to worry about, you know, hot swapping a battery in the middle of surgery, which would never have been the right answer. So it's quite a big challenge to go from, you know, use the word pivot because that's a fashionable term. It's quite a big pivot <laughs> to go from consumer to enterprise and also go to a, you know, a downscale of expectations and resources. So how did you keep everybody motivated and engaged through this process? I got to be honest, I didn't keep some of them. Some of them were very creative. Uh, they were working in, maybe had been hired to work in a content studio. Um, and and at that point, with our pivot to enterprise, they said, this isn't, you know, what I had come here for. They were looking for a different sort of role, a creative role, focused at consumer. And that wasn't, you know, where we were at. We did manage to keep a whole lot of folks because very quickly we painted the vision of what an enterprise focused company can do. And I think consumers always flashier, right? It's it sounds funner, it's flashier versus enterprise, which sounds staid and you know, old fashioned or something. But when you paint the picture of, you know, going back to that company Brain Lab, they were able to train a whole team of surgeons on the separation of some conjoined twins who are conjoined at the brain, uh, who were it was uh, middle of the pandemic, they weren't co-located, but they were all looking at the same brain and they were walking through the steps they would take to separate that brain. They And they trained for months and the outcome was a success. So, you know, you have to quickly, as, as a new CEO, I had to come in and paint a different picture and I hoped it resonated with folks. And I would say it did with most folks, but we did lose a few who, you know, went back to areas, you know, in the creative industry, Hollywood, the entertainment industry, gaming industry, that sort of thing. And I don't blame them. I, I am the biggest fan of following your passions and doing what you are most excited about. I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about ecosystems. So certainly when we think about the metaverse, you know, it's all about ecosystem and building a large interoperable network. And I think Mark's full-time role is to do ecosystem work for Unreal. Uh, and to some extent, um, my main role at, at Cesium uh, is ecosystem. Is That's kind of how we approach the market and create an impact. And thinking back to CES, I mean, I thought you had some very insightful things to share uh, about your approach to ecosystem with Magic Leap. Could you share it with us? If you go, go back several years and you remember Magic Leap 1, 
it would be sitting on, you know, in, in an AT&T store next to a mobile phone that had a huge ecosystem around it, had so many apps you could download, so many things you could do with it. And with Magic Leap One, there was a limited amount of apps. Now, the hope was that devs would pick it up and it would it would grow over time. And it probably would have, you know, given more time. Um, but, you know, the in the end, the pivot to enterprise uh, meant a new ecosystem, right? It, was, it wasn't going to be a consumer ecosystem. We now had to look at what sort of an ecosystem did we need in place and when did we need it in place? And we knew on day one, when that hardware hit the market, that ecosystem needed to be there. So out of the box, the device could show value. You know, you didn't, you don't want to leave something like that up to creative devs who over time will get there, but you want to show value right away and show tangible ROI for someone buying the product. So we worked hard on areas that we thought were resonating the most, again, from what we learned in enterprise users in Magic Leap One, and that was training, any sort of 3D visualization, um, uh, you know, whether that was healthcare or in the training front or, you know, industrial settings, that sort of thing, putting digital twins on things. And then the last area was remote assist. That one continues to surprise me how much it resonates with just about every company, because when you are trying to get something back online and the expert is not there, sometimes a phone call isn't enough. You really want them to see what you're seeing. And so putting on the Magic Leap device and having that expert somewhere else in the world on any device that they have in their hand, being able to enter your world and see what you're seeing um, and, and having the ability to annotate digitally in front of my eyes as I'm looking at a piece of machinery is amazing and keeps people from traveling or making that expert travel. A lot of times like an aircraft uh, mechanic, all they do is travel uh, because there's so few of them and they have to go where the problems are. This device can start to mitigate that kind of travel. And so we focused on those areas and on companies who built things like that in sort of the 2D space, whether it was on, you know, on an iPad or on a PC. And then it was up to us to show them the value of bringing that into the 3D space so you could put it in front of your eyes or overlay a digital twin on an actual physical uh, device in front of you. And that was the, the lift that the team had to do. Um, but, you know, we could have gone in a lot of different directions, but we, you know, we had to show value right away. We had something to prove with Magic Leap 2. So we really limited to that. And people would say, you know what, I'd love to use the device for this or that. But if it wasn't in those three areas, we said, you know, you know, just we're going to take a rain check. We'll, we'll circle back at some point. But right now we're focusing on these three areas because they're use cases that we know resonate and they can solve real problems today. And so those are the sorts of companies that we've pulled into our uh, ecosystem so far. It continues to expand every day. We have a strong uh, dev relations team. We have strong dev support. We've got a good SDK. We built all the things you need for these devices to enter the corporate IT infrastructure. Uh, you know, the all of those things, the privacy, the security, uh, the mobile device management, 
uh, all of that had to be um, added. Some of it was there for Magic Leap 1, but we had to really beef things up from, with Magic Leap 2 in order to enter most companies' IT infrastructure. Peg, I specifically wanted to ask you uh, about the operating system and uh, the move to Android. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So again, I thought Roni had strong vision in this area because when he first started building this device, he looked at the existing operating systems and he either had to convince those operating systems to add in the AR elements that he needed or he had to build his own operating system. And as you can imagine, a very small company uh, startup basically uh, asking some of the larger operating system companies to just add a few elements for them. Um, you know, they were polite, but it went on a list and the list was long. And so Roni made the decision to build his own operating system. And I think it was absolutely the right one because it also gave him so much flexibility as they were learning, you know, this again was new technology. No one had gotten as far into augmented reality as Magic Leap had. And if they needed to try something, they could just, they could go down to the operating system level, make changes, quickly um, uh, do a reset and test something out, you know, in a matter of hours, rather than going back to one of those companies and convincing them to make a change. So it was absolutely the right decision at the time. It, it gave the company the ability to bring a full up device to market. And so Magic Leap One was built on that operating system. They called it Lumen internally. One of the first decisions that the tech team uh, made when I first got there, and they made it within the first few months, was we need to move to a more standard operating system if we want to be able to pull in the you know the broadest set of developers. And that led us to move to um, AOSP because there you know. If you're a developer and you're already developing for Android and iOS, and now this little company is asking you to develop on their operating system, it's a lift. And so in order to knock that obstacle down, and also Android was far more developed with AR elements by that point than when Roni first made that decision. So we moved over. It took some time, obviously. You can imagine we had to touch so much of the code base in order to move it over and it delayed things but it was the right move and it has been nothing but good for us because we've been able to do all sorts of things port things more easily um, bring on all sorts of platforms things like unity microsoft's mrtk that they had their mixed reality toolkit we were able to port that all of these things were just made so much easier with an android base underneath I mean, it's such a great story, and I think it shows that you know, the approach to the ecosystem can be dynamic, right? And the decision can be a right decision at one point in time, and then you know, having that courage to revisit it later. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, and actually what you're saying is true, Patrick, because decisions don't have to be binary. And a lot of times we get very polarized in those. Just going back to the sensibility that Satya taught me, it was always take a fresh look at things. You know, there's... There's no reason that if you said no to something five years ago or even last year, uh, that not to take a fresh look and test it, uh, your theory again. You may change your mind. 
Um, and, and we can get polarized and, and very, you know, binary about our decisions. And it's, that's one thing that, you know, that I learned from Satya that I've tried to take into this job. 2023, you mentioned a few use cases. Which market segments are the most promising for AR? Do you think AR has found its footing in the, in the enterprise space? I do. And, and, you know, the markets are limited right now because, again, they're, we looked for segments that were already comfortable wearing something on their eyes. I mean, this requires you to wear something on your eyes. And um, industrial use cases, they're oftentimes wearing safety glasses, uh, defense and, and um, first responder training. A lot of times they have you know something on their eyes. Surgeons in the operating room oftentimes have things on their eyes. So they were already comfortable wearing that and, and understanding that that was a tool. Those things are tools for them to do their job better. So now you bring in an augmented reality headset. It's not as much of a stretch for those sectors to adopt something worn, head worn on, on your eyes. And that's why we started there. The use cases then evolved from those segments. So I talked a bit about the healthcare industry. Training obviously is a big one. And we, it used to be training outside the operating room. And now you can even use inside the operating room during surgeries. And you know what I like to point out is, you know, in certain countries, say the number of cardiac surgeons is, you know, very, very low per you know, the population that that's in that country. This can almost be a force multiplier because a single cardiac surgeon from a single spot can help assist some new cardiac surgeons or new surgeons who are learning about cardiac surgery to come online more quickly because they have this assistance from afar. You know, if a, if a surgeon opens a patient up and something there is unfamiliar, they can call in an expert. For the first time, an expert can see what they're seeing and talk them through something that they might be uncomfortable proceeding with. And so the use cases around training and in the surgical suite have been the ones we've been most focused on. In the industrial space, any sort of digital twin, you know, whether it's in automotive, uh, inside of a factory, that just makes a lot of sense to people where uh, you know, it's your job to keep the machine in front of you running. It's gone offline. What do you do? You know, in a standard world, you were trained on it six months ago in a classroom, the manual somewhere, you don't know where it is. <laughs> Got to go find the manual, find the page in the manual, get, you know, get to step one. This, you put a computer on your eyes through computer vision. It recognizes the machine, overlays the digital twin on top of it and, and says, what do you need to do? I need to fix this machine. What's the first step? First thing you do, go check this gauge, you know, and digitally it can be pointing it out to you. You can also call in an expert if you get to the end of the steps and you still can't figure it out. Um, you can call in uh, this capture of, which we're finding very interesting as people retire in, the, in these industrial jobs. It's been hard to refill the jobs with new talent, but that, tribal knowledge, if you will, can be captured inside these devices and you bring in someone new and they're, they're immediately empowered because they've got a little expert in their field of view walking them through a fix. It's kind of game changing. And the companies that we've been working with in the industrial space have found that they have an easier time recruiting because this is kind of cutting edge technology. This is not their grandfather's 
factory. You know, this is, they get to use the cutting edge technology that knowledge workers have gotten to use for years. Now a factory worker has the same access to it. And also retaining because they feel empowered. You don't have to, uh, when you get stuck, go, oh, I've got to go find my boss and figure out what the next step is. You can just call in an expert in your field of view who can walk you through it. It's very empowering for a new factory worker. And they found also that the factory workers can be out on the factory floor much more quickly with this type of training. It's just a little bit easier cognitively to understand when things are presented in 3D. Um, so those are the areas, the, the strongest use cases that, that we've seen. And then things like defense training, first responder training, um, unfortunately, active shooter training is one. All of those things can be done with less cost in an augmented reality environment, but in the real environment, which is kind of nice. You can actually train inside of a school, for instance. And so we do have some police departments that are starting to use that to train their officers inside of buildings where they may have never been. They can start to tr do some training on those sorts of things on what to do and, and what's step A, step B, step C, that sort of thing. I remember a surgeon mentioning that the use of AR in the operating room for just this like first time you drive a car with a GPS compared to having a paper map on the passenger seat. I mean, the level of comfort and self-confidence that it brings to surgeon, the fact that they can get so much information is, is, is uh, life-changing for them. It allows them to do their job so much better and has a huge impact. So. I always liken it to when we first started using search instead of you know, going to an encyclopedia and or something, you know, and I'll get the wrong encyclopedia. Where's the R volume, you know, all that. It was never easy. And now like at our fingertips and now in our pocket, you can always find the answer. And now with chat GPT to like literally anything. So do you, you know, it, it is that same kind of feeling that we all got that a surgeon can feel that a factory worker can feel you're just like doing your job better, faster, more productive, with less uh, less rework. All of these things have been we've been able to measure in these early use cases, and so that's why we're focused on those, and we're going to stay focused on those uh, for the short term, because that's where the value is. So, Peggy, I wanted to switch gears and ask you a little bit about the landscape. You know, earlier in this episode, you spoke a lot about kind of all, all the features that you did moving from consumer to enterprise. Uh, but when we look across the landscape, there's devices, you know, from Meta, from Microsoft and Apple. So I wanted to ask your approach to having Magic Leap stand out and, and differentiate. Yeah. First, I would say it is good for us to have more folks in the space. I mean, it helps the ecosystem. It helps the awareness. People now, uh, they understand what mixed reality, augmented reality, virtual reality is. It's mm. it's a it's a different game, even than when I started uh, under three years ago. The just you know, the average person's knowledge of this space has increased, and you know much of that was thanks to uh, Facebook changing their name to Meta and people saying, "Okay, what's this metaverse thing?" You know, that's part of the the educational process that we were going through, kind of person by person, company by company. Now, like people people get it, and and so that's been a huge help. Um, I think. All of the devices that are starting to come onto the market uh, also is encouraging. Um, it means, you know, big companies like Apple, they're validating that there are reasons to use this technology, reasons to bring a device out now. And that has 
been gratifying to see for sure. And it definitely helps the ecosystem because we're getting more and more devs interested in the space. And then, you know, how we differentiate it, we are true immersive augmented reality. We are very, very um, accurately, we very accurately place that digital content in your physical world, you know, to a, a very, very fine precision. And that has been our biggest differentiator. We, we talk about it augmenting your place. So whatever place you're in, we can help augment that as a tool for whatever job you're trying to do. And we're focused on the areas that I've talked about, but that's kind of how we see it. I think some of the devices that have come out are more of a heads-up display, totally useful for certain use cases. Um, it, maybe you just want notifications in your field of view while you're doing your, your job and your hands are free. So you've got a device on that just gives you a heads-up display, quick you know zap of information that helps you do your job better. Um, that's not where we are. And so we are truly interactive digital content. Uh, there's input and output on the content. You can modify it. You can conform it uh, to different things. Someone not uh, near you can augment your physical space with digital content. I mean, all of that is sort of next level. And that is what opens up use cases like in the operating room. Uh, it, in fact, there's another type of augmented reality um, called pass-through which generally is meant to take an image of your physical world and then display it on in front of the display that's in front of your eyes inside of the headset that you have on. Also good for, for certain use cases, but it tends to have some of the same effects as virtual reality does to some portion of the population and that it can make you a bit nauseous. Your, your, your eye is thinking it's seeing something 10 feet away, but it's it's actually focusing on the screen that's three inches away. And that can have a, an adverse effect on, on some people, um, you know, who get that kind of that nauseous feeling in VR. There's also a pretty big latency issue with that because you think what it's doing, the cameras are outwardly facing, it's taking all of that imagery, it's pulling it together, getting it up in front of your eyes. There's a latency there and it, it's so much so that if you throw a ball to somebody who's wearing a pass-through headset, there it'll likely the ball will bounce on the floor because their hands will will clap to hold it uh, after the ball is already dropped. So there's a certain amount of latency that just isn't acceptable for the type of use cases that we're doing in an operating room, for instance. I don't think you'd want a surgeon uh, operating on your knee or any other part of your body to have any latency <laughs> in the imagery of their eyes. You just they just want to see the knee. And they want to see the digital content on top of the knee. And so you're not going to see that kind of technology anytime soon in the operating room. It just doesn't have the precision. And one of our favorite topics is open standards, right? We think that, you know, the metaverse is going to be built by many people and everything needs to connect. And, you know, Mark knows between the two of us, I'm the geek. So I love the idea of, of formats that can be used by many different companies or having an API that can have many different implementations. So, you know, I wanted to ask about OpenXR and if you think that can help accelerate adoption. Yeah, we are huge fans of open uh, standards. We are members. I can actually, we hold the vice chairman spot at OpenXR. Uh, Magically 2 is compliant with OpenXR. Um, and as other standards, as they do continue to evolve in the industry, our goal is to be compliant with as many of them as we can. 
again, just kind of going back to the company size, that's how we see our ability to scale. The more open that magic leap can be, the faster we can scale and tap into new new areas, new companies, new developers. And to not do that would inhibit our growth. And so we are, we've always been fans of open standards, but there's actually a business reason too, because we, we, we want to touch as many, um, many of these areas as we can. And so we work hard to keep things very open. Um, we integrate to, you know, any number of, of platforms. We just uh, have been integrating with NVIDIA's Omniverse, for instance, um, strong platform, uh, building their own connections to other um, software packages at a rapid pace. That helps me scale. If I connect to Omniverse and then Omniverse connects to those other packages in the industry, it's a huge force multiplier for Magic Leap. So we are going to continue to do that. We'll continue to be fans of that and we we'll continue to contribute. You know, we, at, we do hold that vice chair position, as I said, but we're also one of the major contributors uh, to OpenXR and we'll keep doing that as well. Are there any obvious gaps in the open source slash open standard landscape that you can think of? When the team has seen gaps, they've worked hard to run toward them and, and try to come up with an industry standard that, you know, everybody in, in the forum agrees with and then and then push ahead with it. Um, so, you know, and we're in a little bit of a different spot than some of the other companies. We, we're pure play in the augmented reality space where, you know, we, I don't have a cloud I'm trying to sell. I, I'm not trying to sell games. I'm not trying to sell advertising. It's just augmented reality, my device and my platform. That has left us a bit more flexible than maybe some of the others. And we're happy to hold that position. You've been a very, very active uh, in supporting diversity. And first, I, mean, I would like give you a chance to, to tell us what you did at Magic Leap and then give your thoughts about how we can help the industry uh, do better to get all those point of views around the table. When I walked in the door at Magic Leap, diversity was one of the topics I raised, I think it was on the very first day. <laughs> because again, I had learned a lot, um, both coming up myself through engineering at, at Qualcomm and, um, and obviously my work at Microsoft. And I had seen, there's not only, you should do it because it's the right thing to do, have a diverse team, hear from all the voices, but there's also business reasons to do it. You really need to think about who you're selling your product to. And if the product is designed and developed by all the same type, you're, you're likely going to sell to that type. So I, I, I always just use myself if, you know, the team was full of Peggy's. Um, I know what the, what the device would do and I would love it. <laughs> and the other <laughs> Peggy's on the team would love it. But there's a big world out there and it might not, you know, fit for, for everybody for a variety of reasons. So why not build for the biggest audience you can? And that is the, you know, the sensibility that I learned from Microsoft. And I think Microsoft learned that over the years. They, they had a few stumbles with a, with a various set, and they're very open about it. They'll, they'll talk about different areas where they, they, as they were building a product, they didn't test it on all age groups or all genders or all ethnicities. And that limited their ability to sell into those areas. And so they learned, hey, these design teams should be very, very diverse because that's how you're going to sell to the most people. And brought that into the company. 
the good thing was Roni had a very similar sensibility and, and much of that was in place already. Um, we weren't as diverse, say, in our engineering base. And, and so we've worked hard over the last few years to increase our number of female engineers, having a diverse set of folks in our leadership. And it is work. It's easier when you know someone to say, oh, I know the right person to put into that spot. But we're like, no, we're going to go and get a diverse slate. And then we're going to choose who goes in, who goes into that spot. You know, I just don't take uh, no for an answer when people say, oh, I don't have time to do that. It's like, well, that's that's what we're going to do, because that is the right thing to do for our other employees. It's the right thing to do for our business. It's the right thing to do for our market. And we take the time to do that. And the numbers are changing slowly. And and, you know, you have to keep your foot on the gas pedal. You can't say, oh, I've done enough. <laughs> you got just you always have to wa- look at the numbers and monitor them and and beat yourself up when they don't look good and double down. So those are things that remain important to me three years in, even given all the other things that we go through, diversity uh, remains an important topic to me and we keep it alive every day. Now, for the industry as a whole, I, I can only talk about my own experience and and I think others could weigh in with similar experiences, but I wouldn't want to speak for them. I would say coming up as a female engineer, you know, 25 years at Qualcomm, it was not always easy. I was almost always the only woman in the room, almost always, you know, when I when I became a manager, I looked around, there were there were no other female managers at the time. You know, it, so many things where it's just not as comfortable when you're the only one because you get some good attention, you can get bad attention. It's like, you know, people are watching you more than maybe everybody else. There's all sorts of reasons why it's not comfortable to be the only person on a team, you know, with your features or your gender or your ethnicity. And so that to me, my own experience of that kind of that feeling of isolation and at one time feeling like I wanted to leave the industry because I thought I just, it just wasn't a welcoming place. I, you know, set myself on a course to try and change that in my career. And I've spent hours and and days and conferences and given talks on this to to just keep it visible, keep people understanding the value of it. Because the more that we can create a diverse uh, set of engineers, the more engineers come into the field. I mean, we need engineers. We're so short in general here that what are we doing? Why would we isolate any group? Let's say come one, come all. But when you bring them in, they have to feel comfortable in that environment. So the second thing is, how do you build a, an inclusive environment at work? And again, we spent a lot of time on that. Going back to my own experience, I'm a very quiet, very introverted person in general. And I used to have a hard time, I still have a hard time breaking into a conversation in you know a real loud, dynamic meeting. And I figured out, and I've told various managers along the way, just like, make some room for me because I have a hard time making my own spot in there and I feel awkward doing it. And I think other people even think it looks awkward when I try to do that because I mean, I have to speak up and I don't usually speak up and it's not comfortable for me. 
And so I've spoken with managers and just said very simply, using a sports analogy, throw me the ball. Like every now and then, throw me the ball. Turn to me and say, Peggy, you know, what are you thinking on this topic? And that has made a big difference. And so I try to do that with other people who who also may have a hard time breaking in. Um, and, and then also not penalizing anybody that you don't hear from in a meeting. So, oh, they never said anything. You know, they might have had a lot to say. They just weren't able to break in. And I'll drop by their office sometimes and say, oh, I was just wondering what you thought about that conversation. And, you know, do you have any input? So that, that that's what I mean when I say make it an inclusive environment. There's little things you can do uh, to help everybody have a voice. And the more voices, the better products, the better services, the better software platforms you make. So it, again, it makes business sense to do that. And so I've tried to to keep that up in, in all three of my careers. <laughs> yeah, so Peggy, this has been an inspiring conversation. I was really looking forward to it and this this topped, topped my expectations. Uh, to wrap things up, uh, we wanted to know if you wanted to give a shout out to any person, organization, or, or multiple. Oh, I would love to give a shout out to one of our uh, software partners. It's also a female tech CEO. There's not a lot of us, <laughs> but... Alicia Caputo, she runs Avrio Analytics, and she has just built some amazing solutions on top of Magic Leap 2 in the area of first responder uh, training and safety training. Actually, we're using it now uh, in our factory. We have to train once a year on uh, if a fire breaks out. She's got an amazing, a little bit too realistic uh, <laughs> uh, augmented reality a solution that we can use on our own employees. So Peggy, you are, you're an engineer, you're a business developer, you're an ecosystem builder. Uh, you look like an amazing CEO. We are super happy to have you with us today. So thank you so much for taking the time. We know how busy you are and we really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you all having me on the podcast. This has been really fun. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening to us. You can reach, up, reach us on social, on LinkedIn, on Twitter. And you can email us at feedback at buildingtheopenmetaverse.org. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Peggy. Thank you, everybody.